Good afternoon, Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. I want to get right into discussion of metallothionine, something we were discussing just yesterday on the podcast. I introduced you a paper published in Scientific Reports uh, in 2017, and I will go through it real quickly with you. Um, we were talking about Alzheimer's disease, and you know that of all the dementia that occurs in human population, particularly elderly associated, somewhere between 60 to 70% of it ends up having Alzheimer's type of pathology. Now we know that dementia has many presentations, neuropsychiatric in nature. One is his decline in memory and then the ability to carry out useful communication such as with their native tongue. There's also a decrease in problem solving and higher cognitive skills overall. And ultimately, everyday activities become hindered as this dementia increases because of neurodegeneration in those particular nuclei and circuits. So in terms of pathology, as I said, very specific for Alzheimer's, you get a deposit of the amyloid beta or A-beta protein around neurons. You also get hyperphosphorylated tau protein uh, making fibrillary tangles. There's a lot of oxidative stress. As I mentioned, this is just reactive oxygen. There is a problem with uh, metal ion deposition and metal ion utilization to produce reactive oxygen. There is a lot of neuroinflammation because of all of these biochemical phenomena. Ultimately, you get either ferritosis or apoptosis of the neurons, and also the microglia are in association with this process. Now, the other thing that we find is that the base protein is also affected. Now, base, B-A-C-E, that is actually a transmembrane aspartic acid, aspartic protease, aspartic acid protease. And what the base stands for is beta site APP cleavage enzyme. The APP is the amyloid precursor protein, Alzheimer's disease pathology. So the base is the beta secretase, and it cleaves this amyloid precursor protein, and that initiates beta amyloid uh, biosynthesis. So base is actually a prime therapeutic target or it was for many years for Alzheimer's disease. Base, like other aspartate proteases, has a propeptide domain that has to be removed, so it itself has to be proteolytically processed to make the mature protein. And the base propeptide cleavage occurs at a sequence, which is the amino acids RLPR, and then the cleavages are there, and then E is the next amino acid. And so that is a canonical furin recognition motif for those of you that know about proteases. Now, I want to remind you a little bit more about these proteases because I spent a lot of time in, all, in authentic biochemistry discussing these with various diseases. Now, a paper I found in FASAB journal published in 2013 gave me, I think, a nice synopsis. And so I'm going to give it to you. Base one and another protein called presenilin, which you've heard me talk about, and we abbreviate that PS gamma secretase. So base one and presenilin gamma secretase 
play significant roles in Alzheimer's pathology because they regulate, as I just mentioned, the amyloid beta peptide generation. So you take the precursor protein, you make peptides, and then those peptides will ligamerize, and that pathology has been associated with Alzheimer's because of the induction of neuroinflammation via the microglia activation. So these secretases, though, have another role, and uh, anything that becomes patho uh, pathobiochemical at one point was just a straight up biochemical process, typically necessary and essential for normal physiology. So what these secretases I just mentioned to you normally do is they process a voltage-gated sodium channel. And there are auxiliary beta subunits associated with this, and, and these beta subunits are processed, and that modulates membrane excitability. Now, there are other voltage-gated channels. There are also potassium voltage-gated channels. They also have auxiliary subunits. And these potassium channels undergo a sequential cleavage mediated either by the alpha secretase or by that PS gamma secretase or base one. So you've got both of these functioning in central nervous system. If you have an elevated alpha secretase or if you have a base one activity increased C-terminal fragment called the CTF, the levels of that potassium channel uh, in human embryonic kidney cells and in rat neuroblastoma cells, uh, you're going to find out that when they're processed by the gamma secretase, the, uh, KC, the potassium channel intracellular domain, that's abbreviated KCNE, uh, becomes proteolytically processed. Now, those KCNE cleavage points uh, can be specifically blocked by chemical inhibition of the secretases, as you might guess. And so what you find in mouse cardiomyocytes and in cultured primary neurons, endogenous KCNE1 and KCNE2 CTF levels, remember that's the C-terminal fragment, so it's going to be indicative of the processing by those secretases, actually increases several fold between two and four fold when you have a PS gamma secretase inhibition or a base one overexpression. So the elevated base one activity seems to be increasing the potassium channel processing, okay? And when you get that, you get a shift from KCNE1 ratio to KCNO1, okay? So there's a change in the processing. And what you get then is an alteration of potassium channel voltage-gated regulation. So when that channel is in a cardiac potassium channel complex, that positive shift because of those secretaries, the base one being now a more center stage and prominent, actually leads to a decrease in membrane repolarization. And that occurs during cardiac action potential cycles. So overall, what this shows is that those two potassium channels, KCNE1 and KCNE2 cleavage, are regulated by the base one and the presenilin gamma secretase activity under normal physiological conditions. 
This is very important, okay? Because it shows you the functional role for not only potassium cleavage and regulated voltage-gated potassium channels in the central nervous system, but also the, uh, the more physiological biochemical role for base one and presenilin gamma secretase when we're not talking about the A-beta protein at all. So the A-beta protein then is going to be an orphan substrate for these convertases, proteases, base one and the gamma secretase, presenilin. So you understand why I brought this up, because now any involvement of the A-beta protein expression of it um, concomitant with an activation of the base one or the presenilin gamma secretase is going to lead to the prodromal uh, association that we normally think about with tissue pathology for AD. That is the, oligo the oligomer formation of the A-beta protein, okay? This is the kind of thing that we need to understand in the aging brain, and we're getting more and more detail as we go on. Now, back to this metallothionine story. Metal-binding proteins like metallothionine 3, the one we were talking about in the 2017 paper, are a low molecular mass. They're very small, 6 to 7 kilodaltons. They have a lot of cysteine in the protein, and they have a high metal content. You have a lot of zinc 2, and you have a lot of copper 1. And these uh, metallothionines, these MT3 isoforms, are uh, intensely expressed in the central nervous system. Okay? And what is well known in the literature is MT3, that particular isoform of that telothionine, is downregulated in AD pathology. So MT3 was shown to inhibit a neurotrophic activity and a neuronal growth in the presence of AD brain extracts. But a detox of heavy metals and the regulation of cellular copper and zinc metabolism actually are more likely a protective role rendered by the metallothionine. So MT3 antagonism, you're going to get a neurotoxic and a neurotrophic effect of the A-beta proteins. Now, this is where it gets very interesting. The two domains of MT3, you have a linker lysine-lysine serine, so you have that um, trimer amino acid motif, and it is a cooperative unit because each of those linker regions are indispensable in conducting the actual events. And what is that? The alpha-beta domain interaction through that linker is critical for the protective role with a mechanism involving this metal ion being displaced in the A-beta protein. And what occurs is that rather than getting A beta copper 2, you get zinc just mis, uh, replaced into that A beta protein. So this zinc 7 MT3 blocks the A beta copper 2 now, okay? And, and when you block the A beta copper 2, you also block reactive oxygen species production from that moiety in the CNS because A-beta copper 2 generates ROS and ROS normally induces neuronal damage and of course subsequent patho 
inflammation. So all this suggests then that the A-beta zinc 2, where the zinc has now replaced the copper, brought down the reactive oxygen production and actually worked to rescue cell viability. So that's the whole story now that you get from metallothion. Now, I'll give you a little bit more. MT3 regulates, therefore, the non-amylogenic pathway. And it does so because of its uh, proteolytic processing uh, 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 associated abilities, because it deals with a protein known as atom. It generates ADAM into an active form. And that results in an increase in the soluble amyloid precursor protein alpha uh, because you get the lack of proteolytic processing of it. And rather than that, you get a reduced A beta peptide level. Okay, so that's what MT3 rate is, uh, MT3 is doing through this protein called ADAM by controlling the soluble APP levels. Okay, so that's a non amyloidogenic pathway. So in the study we just went through, the uh, amyloid precursor protein PS1 mice, this is where mice where they've, they've introduced human amyloid precursor protein with human presenilin-1. Remember, that's the secretase, right? So you've got the substrate and you got the enzyme for it. When you take those mice that co-express and treat them with a sustained drug release, zinc 7 MT3, directly into the central nervous system, this is a mouse model, remember, you get a better indication, a clear focus on the molecular mechanism of the zinc 7 MT3. Because what it does, it protects against Alzheimer's disease, doing so because the zinc 7 MT3 can significantly diminish cognitive deficits. Again, mouse model. And in so doing and proving the morphology and function of the hippocampus, a decrease in uh, the amyloid formation of the microglia, which are recognized as the more pro-inflammatory uh, phenotype. And at the same time, the zinc 7 MT3 regulates metal homeostasis by uh, swapping out the copper for the zinc. And therefore, ultimately, it abolishes A-beta oligomer plaque accumulation. Therefore, it reduces oxidative stress, neuronal cell apoptosis and ferroptosis. At the same time, you're looking at an increase in the soluble APP protein and the lack of the presenilin uh, gamma secretase um, proteolytic activation of that to the A-beta form, which oligomerizes and causes the neuroinflammation. All this was shown in transgenic mice. Okay, So now you understand the story here. Now, I want you to think back when we were talking a while ago about an interaction of affect and consciousness by looking at autism spectrum disorder. And we introduced this a couple of times uh, in the last four or five lectures. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit more detail about this. This is what we do in authentic biochemistry. We draw upon multiple lines of peer-reviewed published research in order to be able to focus on mechanisms so that we can understand 
the event ontology, in this case, diseases of the elderly. Okay. So it suggested that the compromised functional integrity of the amygdala is a cause of disturbed affective consciousness. The amygdala, with all of its connections to various cortical and subcortical regions, helps detect a fearful facial expression at the attentional periphery and makes it a focus of attention and awareness for then ultimately enhanced processing. So it's part of this associative arousal system, you see? Not only arousal from sleep to wakefulness, but attention. So the life of a true autistic with respect to affective objects can thus be very different from that of non-autism patients. And that will lead then to an actual complete alteration of perception of the world around them. Because they process fear, fearful stimuli the way that normal controls perceive common objects because of activating areas responsible for feature-based analysis rather than using the amygdala and other and, and the connected associated subcortical and cortical nuclei. You see how that works. So conscious perception of such stimuli would be important for appropriate development of emotional understanding. And that's something that it appears in some presentations of some autism phenotypes in ASD lack. Thus, that leads to impairment in the awareness of one's own emotions, especially within the negative spectrum, with a prominent position being associated with what we call fearful stimuli. Now, all of this is important because now we can discuss the amygdala a little bit. So the amygdala interacts with the sensory cortex. So that's the audio, visual, somatosensory, as well as gustatory and olfactory senses. Also, the amygdala gets signals then from the sensory thalamus. And the sensory thalamus is going to give the amygdala uh, neurochemical information of the visual, auditory, and somatosensory. You also get hippocampal and entorhinal cortex interacting with the amygdala. Of course, the prefrontal cortex, as we just mentioned, there's a lot of regulation there. Sensory brainstem, this includes the gustatory, pain and visceral interactions with the amygdala. That's how you associate pain with emotion. The ventral striatum also gives you other uh, interactions. The amygdala then um, notifying the ventral striatum, and we talked about that previously. Also the do dorsal uh, vagus, the hypothalamus, the PA. G or the paraacroductal gray. This is part of the freezing response in the rodent system. And then a bunch of modulatory systems are linked to the amygdala's output. And that's norepinephrine, dopaminergic, acetylcholine, and serotonin. All of that now is part of the arousal system I just went through with you at the behavioral presentation level and then earlier at the biochemical physiological level. So the reason I'm bringing this up, check this out. 
copper is found. Remember, copper associated with Alzheimer's because of the A-beta and the metallothion and swapping out the zinc and reducing that, right? Copper is actually also found in high abundance in the autistic brain. And so there are therapies that still are being used or at least um, can be considered by some psychiatrists in treating autism that link up with metallothionin because of the copper component of the uh, etiology. Now, we know that interferon blocks metallothionin isoform expression in certain brain regions. Remember, that's what we talked about yesterday. Also, that interferon affects metallothionin production in the liver after endotoxin, that's LPS, induction. So what we can say is that cytokine deficiency or a lack of an immune activation in subjects stressed with, say, a bacterial infection or a virus, because then we're talking, we're bringing in also now the pattern recognition receptors, because that's upstream, could lead to increased metallothionine expression, copper sequestration, and perhaps, linking all this together, a decrease in that autism, Alzheimer's disease, pathobiochemical locus. Okay. So that, that's something I want you to consider. This is the way that neuroscientists go about studying these problems. And I'm, I'm giving you, again, the florid details so that you understand that even something that we know a great deal about, Alzheimer's, and something we know very little about still after years of studying it, autism, you can find an axis of interaction. And even though the readout, the presentation is unique between autism spectrum disorders, at least most forms of it, because that's more of an emotion, lack of an emotional registering or a misreading of an emotional registration. Whereas in Alzheimer's disease, you have all these other um, presentations, loss of memory and uh, fits of anger and whatnot. We're still talking about the central nervous system. We're still talking about neuroinflammatory responses. And below that, which precursor to all of that, are such things as the expression of genes whose proteins can control metal metabolism and therefore control the oxidation state of the brain, leading either to a protected state, like with the zinc metallothionin 3, or an unprotected reactive oxygen species eruption in certain nuclei in the brain as caused by the copper two uh, in the A-beta protein. Remember that. Okay, so I also want you to think now, let's go back to the immune system. Remember that you have circulating antibodies from a previously recognized epitope, sometimes from an antigen, sometimes from self, and often from a previous pathogenic response. Now, these antibodies will bind around any recognized infected cell. That antibody-occluded infected cell then can interact with receptors on the surface of a natural killer cell, and you will get antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity. Likewise, you can get opsonization and that entire uh, uh, virus or bacterial system can be opsonized 
by the FC gamma receptors on the phagocyte and then go through phagocytosis and be degraded. Complement can also play a role here. So rather than going on the opsonization route, you can have complement binding, further processing now because of antibody affinity around an incoming virus or an incoming bacteria, you can get phagocytosis that way through. So via complement or via opsonization. Okay. So this antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity involves antibody opsonization and activation of the comp and of the complement. And all of that leads to an antibody-dependent, complement-mediated, sometimes virolysis, or if it's bacteria, phagocytosis, all that's directed against uh, either bacteria or free virions or even infected cells or even auto-detected um, inflamed cells or cancer cells. Okay? Now, all of that will link up the natural killer cell, circulating antibody, and the circulating phagocytes, right? such as monocytes and macrophages. Or if it's resident in the central nervous system, you would, of course, have microglia playing a role. Right? Of course. All right. So these are these are really important features because you get nonspecific responses, and what those are generalized to a pathogen infection. And we've talked a great deal about these. So this is occurring um, in in throughout the periphery of the body, and also sometimes, unfortunately, can link with the uh, peripheral nervous system, but also even in some rare accounting into the central nervous system. All these would then be vagaries of turning on the reactive oxygen and utilizing the innate and the acquired immune system to trigger that inflammatory response that we see elevated in the aging brain. And this can occur because of previous events associated with the accumulation of circulating antibody to specific antigens or from previous production of memory B cells, B plasma cells, and memory T cells. And then after infiltration of those cells through the blood-brain barrier as the, as the central nervous system ages, could then induce uh, a reactive oxygen production because of a pro-inflammation response linked either to uh, the erroneous detection of self-antigen triggering those memory cells because of alterations in transcription or tra even sometimes transcription factors that are inappropriately expressed in those T memory or in those B cell lineages. Sending signals throughout the body, sometimes in situ though, unfortunately, right into the central nervous system. And these are then all going to be the plenum of neurobiochemical and neuro pathobiochemical responses that can ultimately lead to uh, neurodegeneration in the aging brain, okay? So just remember that nonspecific responses in the immune system you typically involve pathogen infection, but you also get autoantigen detection, from the same response. Now, with a nonspecific response, you don't target a specific cell type. So a nonspecific response consists then usually of 
leukocytes and an accumulation of plasma proteins such as complement, right, and opsonins. So phagocytes, of course, will now phagocytize or consume form material, and they will destroy it, sometimes entire virions and bacteria. So phagocytes are actually formed from stem cells in the bone marrow. And remember, those stem cells are basically undifferentiated leukocytes. Now, some of the major players here that are surveilling in the innate immune response are neutrophils. They phagocytize bacteria, of course. And then eosinophils. And eosinophils will secrete enzymes to kill parasitic organisms and other pathogens. And those are eosinophils are often associated also with the allergic response. And then the third type of innate immune cell that we talk a lot about, of course, the macrophages. They phagocytize uh, bacteria. They phagocytize parasite or parasitic fragments of various stages of reproduction in parasites, the, you know, the life cycle of the parasite. And they also will phagocytize virions. So macrophages are a general phagocytic cell lineage. So I'm going to stop here because now we're moving into, yeah, we're moving into the immune response. So I did a lot of neurodegeneration, um, a lot of great straightforward neurophysiology and neuropathophysiology. And now I want to get back into the immune system. That's we're going to hit really hard. And then we're going to also do some really fun um, canonical biochemistry because that's what I like to do most because I like to buy bioenergetics, lipid metabolism, carbohydrate metabolism, amino acid utilization. Anyways, this is the 18th of May, Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry. And of course, I'm going to say the same thing I do every night. Goodbye for now.